You're listening to the Christian Humanist Radio Network, christianhumanist.org. Food is a big deal in the Bible, and it's a big deal throughout the Bible, from the plentiful foods of Eden to forbidden fruit consumed at the fall, from God's provision to a wandering and rebellious people to the bounty of the promised land, from the incredible miracles of Christ to the Last Supper shared with the disciples, from communion among a few believers on earth to the wedding supper of the Lamb. Food is everywhere. It fills the word with the same prosaic regularity that it fills our lives. Food is a sign of provision, a source of comfort, an opportunity for sin, a catalyst for community. It unites God's people and separates them from the world. It is a necessity and a blessing, practical yet lavish, sufficient and also abundant. It is a picture of God's word and of his son, our true source of nourishment and life. But for many modern evangelicals like myself, our primary interaction with food is limited to the act of consumption. We have little firsthand experience with the history of our food before its arrival on our table. As a result, it's easy to miss some of the significance of particular foods that appear in scripture. The Bible is replete with agricultural and culinary metaphors and parables, subjects familiar to the first and original hearers in an agricultural society, but which may seem more foreign to us. Today on Christian Humanist Profiles, we have with us someone who decided to educate herself on these matters and to share that experience with us, her readers. Uh, Margaret Feinberg, the author of the new book, Taste and See, Discovering God Among Butchers, Bakers, and Fresh Food Makers. Thanks so much for being here, Margaret. It is pure joy. Thank you, thank you. Can you tell us a little bit about your book? Like, what's the one-minute book pitch for for what this book is? You know, I decided to do something a little offbeat and go on a culinary spiritual exploration of the Bible. And so I hand-selected six different foods of the Bible and began to, to track down people who plant and procure and process those foods, who know them in depth, then began to open up the scripture and ask each person, how do you read these passages, not as theologians, but in light of what you do every day? And their answers changed the way that I read the Bible forever. Ever. Time and time again, I found myself asking, how have I grown up in the church? How have I listened to so many sermons? How have I downloaded so many podcasts? And nobody has told me these things. This became the ba basis for the book and the adventure where I literally went 410 feet down into a salt mine. I fished on the Galilee. I harvested figs with one of the nation's premier fig farmers. I baked bread with an expert on ancient grains at Yale University and more, all in order to understand the incredible little literal breadth of food in the Bible. Because once you start looking for it, you start recognizing that it pops and sizzles on almost every page. You're making me hungry. Um, <laughs> um, there's a so, warning at the front of the book real quick, and it literally says, uh, we highly recommend that you eat, read this book with snacks nearby because there is something about talking about food, thinking about food, and it does. It makes us hungry. It does. And I, I should say, too, the book also includes recipes uh, using the, the various foods that you focus on. And uh, and what I really loved, some practical tips for things like how to buy the meat at the butcher or knowing your fish is fresh or things like that. Um, so it's, it, it, it is assisting you in your pursuit of snacks <laughs> as it educates <laughs> you um, uh, about the significance of those foods in, in the Bible. Um, now, you mentioned a few um, of the foods you talked about, but just so our listeners are clear, what are the, the six foods that you focused on? Ooh, I spent time uh, looking at bread, at fruit, specializing in figs, at meat, particularly the lamb, uh, olives, and two more, which I can never remember all six at the same time. because uh, I Salt and fish. Yes, I am that awesome. I'm like, oh, how can I never remember all six at once? Uh, anything more than a list of three, I, I start to max out. So the fact that you got four is, is still impressive to me. Um, okay, so yeah, so the, the, those are the six foods that you talked about um, in the book. And I'm curious, how did you go about picking those six? 
You know, originally I'd written a book a number of years ago called Scouting the Divine, My Search for God Among wool, wool, Wine, Wool, and Wild Honey, because obviously I'm an author who loves her some alliteration. And in that book, I spent time with beekeepers, farmers, um, grape growers and vintners and again opened up the scripture and began to understand and study these in depth and what's interesting is i finished that book and people kept coming up to me and saying why have you not spent time with an olive grower and i thought that is a great question and so i knew that one day i was going to do a follow-up to that book but at the time i was looking at the agrarian context of the scripture really trying to understand within that agrarian world how they listened to and leaned into the text which is different how than how many of us do to day because we're so disconnected from our food sources. But, but when I went down and I started to make a list of, of other foods I wanted to look at or other things in the in the scripture, I started to look and, and identify the ones. There were kind of some confines in this kind of project in the sense that, A, you need a food that has enough mentions, that it has enough depth to really be able to dive into the scripture. Um, a second requirement was that it had to, at some point, point to the redemption um, of humanity or, or be used in a way in which God used this food, this imagery in order to communicate to his people. It wasn't just a passing aside. It wasn't just, you know, a little cinnamon on something, literally. Um, and then third, I needed to be able to find the people who both plant, procure, or process these foods. And, and that was its own challenge because those people had to be engaging, interesting, insightful, um, and have some ability to, to engage the text. So no small challenge there. So by the time I was done, I ended up with six foods to look at. That's, yeah, that sounds like a great, I mean, that sounds like a great methodology for picking uh, the, the topics to, to talk about. And one of the questions that I had was, was sort of, you know, what other foods might you, uh, I guess, were you considering when you were winnowing your list down to these six? Um, although I have to confess, three of the ones I was thinking of, it sounds like were dealt with in your first book already. Uh, <laughs> honey, uh, honey, and um, and uh, wine, Grapes, yes. and then, yeah, and then vinegar, which would have been um, a relative of wine as well. Um, but were there other other foods that you considered that didn't meet those criteria, or that you just didn't have time to deal with in this particular book? Yeah, that's a great question. And that is, that is part of it. I, you know, I would have looked at honey and, and vines and basic farming, um, and even, even shepherding and that kind of thing. But again, I'd already covered that. So what I didn't want to repeat a book I'd already written. Sure. Uh, one chapter that I, I dreamed about and I wanted to write about was dairy in the Bible. I really wanted to look at cheese and milk and its presence in the Bible. And do you know, I, um, I went to four different dairy farmers. I mean, flying across the country interviewing. I, I had one where their, their farm was flooded the day before I arrived. Um, another became very ill. <laughs> Obviously, I should not go visit dairy farmers. <laughs> that, that, would be, <laughs> that would be hit number one. But in the end, I thought, you know, after four attempts, I, I think we're just going to let that one go. So that would be one that I'd love to look, uh, still look at. And then another, I would love to focus in on spices of the Bible. I think that would be fascinating to really look and understand, because um, I I think there's a couple dozen different spices that are mentioned throughout the text. Yeah, that sounds like it would be fascinating. Uh, I admire your restraint and being willing to stop and let go of, of food number seven and like not just fight for that like biblical numerology of like, no, it can't be six. It can't be six. It must be seven. Um, so that's good because not everything has to be seven. But um, now, so for the six foods that you do talk about, uh, the places that you end up visiting to learn more about these foods, some of them aren't necessarily places that readers would associate with particular foods. Uh, for example, you talk about picking olives in Croatia or uh, or uh, mining salt in Utah, which, uh, you know, probably should be more intuitive to me because the Salt Lake Salt Lake. Um, but but it, when I first read it, I was like, oh, in Utah, I wouldn't think of there being salt in Utah, um, which is, as like I said, probably more a reflection of my own ignorance. But how did you select the locations that you visited? Was it a matter of, of picking foods first and then seeking out locations for those? Or it almost sounds like it was sort of a... Uh, mutual uh, thing occurring at the same time where you were letting the, the availability of locations sort of shape your selection of foods. Is that right? Yeah, 
It, in some ways, yes. I mean, the primary was the six foods, but then secondary under that was the people, because I knew in this book, I needed to tell a great story. And to tell a great story, you have to have great people who are engaging, thoughtful, quirky, strange, insightful, um, or, or the encounters that you ha are having with them are that way as well. And so that just makes great reading and engaging and delightful and surprise and all the wonders. So, so it was actually food first and then people. And then often it was the people who helped determine the locations. Um, and, and so when I set out on this, and this may be a little unusual, I had zero contacts. I literally, I mean, like maybe your cell phone is full of world-class fig farmers. I know not. <laughs> Only a couple. <laughs> okay. I should have called you. Why didn't you tell me? <laughs> so I would literally, um, I just, I prayed. I was like, I, and I'll just be honest. I said, God, I feel like this is an assignment from you. I'm going to step out in faith and do this, but I have no contact. So I'm just going to start praying and I'm going to start putting myself out there. And I would literally show up maybe at an event that I was speaking at or visiting friends. And I'd be like, do you know a fig farmer? Do you know a fig farmer? Do you know a fig farmer? And like on the ninth try, someone would say something like, well, I know somebody who might know somebody. And then I just follow that rabbit trail. And so that's how it was for all of the foods. I mean, I was running around saying, do you know anybody who harvests salt? Do you know anybody? And I'm, I'm thinking about geographic, I'm Googling, I'm doing all these things. And in each, in each case, it was somebody who said, you know, I do know somebody who you might want to reach out to, or it might have been the second or third down that rabbit trail. And um, it was amazing to see God's provision, like even in the storytelling, even in the adventuring in that, starting with nothing and going, God, I trust you, and, and watching him come through uh, with some quirky, delightful characters um, that you read about in the book, whether it's Edo um, on the Sea of Galilee. Uh, you know, I mean, maybe you know fishermen on the Galilee. I found that I asked like 73 people People and none of them did. Um, and finally track guy down a guy who lives on the Galilee with his family, who actually doesn't fish in the Galilee for himself, but knows a fisherman and, and made that inroad that way. So it was an exciting adventure just seeing how all of this came together. And, and in some of the trips, um, just to be honest, it wasn't just one trip. So for some of them, it required going back at different harvesting seasons to get the full picture, for example, with a fig farmer. So I went in winter and saw what it was like to prune those trees, which, by the way, is severe. It is a severe pruning um, in order to produce great figs. And then uh, circled back in the summer when I could go and harvest the figs and experience that, that part of the, the, the planting and the procurement of that food. Yeah, it sounds, I mean, that sounds like it would be fascinating and certainly would contribute to a more complete picture because, of course, the original hearers are not just going to know what figs are like one day of the year. They're going to have a more holistic view of, of what fig farming or, or whatever it is looks like all four seasons. So that would certainly contribute to a more complete picture um, of that. Um, now, in these various... Uh, Various adventures, and boy, they do sound like adventures. Um, did you have a favorite food experience, uh, either based on location or the food itself, or just something about the process that was that was particularly um, significant for you? You know, one of the most, it, it opens up the book in the in the first big adventure, but going and fishing on the Galilee, I did. I debated all over, we've kind of hinted at this already in this conversation, but that idea of where do you go to study fish? And I mean, I my husband and I, uh, my husband's from Alaska. You know, I've been out on incredible fishing boats there. We thought about going on the, the either coast of the United States. And finally, I was just like, you know what, to really understand fishing on the Galilee, I need to go to the Galilee. And so then going through friend after friend to track down a fisherman. And I went right before the Passover and went out on the skiffs and watched them, um, you know, set the nets and bring in the fish and what that was like. It was, it was incredible. Um, and interacting with the fishermen, seeing their life, understanding that in just side note, Bible geek out moment. So in the Galilee, whenever you read in the Bible about Jesus going out with a fisherman, you'll find that they're always coming back at dawn. Why? because the nets were made of linen fibers and the fish could see the linen fibers. And so they could see the nets. So the only way to catch them by surprise was always to go fishing at night. And so today in modern, you know, Israel, you can go in and use our fine, clear little nets. But in ancient times, that wasn't possible. So we finish up this whole fishing expedition. I'm ready to go home. And Ido says, you must stay with my family and celebrate the Passover. And I'm thinking, uh, yeah, 
I mean, sure. when you're given an opportunity to have an authentic Passover with a Jewish family in Israel, the answer is, yes, please sign me up. And so I stay and, and I'm there at the family with a family and the extended family and they're reading the Haggadah and they're going through all the sub- symbolic um, acts of, of the meal and the readings in Hebrew, which I really don't understand, but I've got a great person next to me who's trying to translate them. And we're all leaning to the left as we eat, symbolizing the fleeing out of, uh, out of Egypt. And I remember at the end of that night, after the kids had went and looked for the hidden manna and all of the chaos and songs and joy, and it just erupted into just one big party. But the grandmother came up, came up to me, grandmother from Fared, and she said, do you know why we do this, Magritte? And I said, uh, because it's the Passover? <laughs> like, I, I, I don't, I, that's what I thought. And she points to where the kids had been seated at the table. And she goes, no because they must know where they come from. They must know where they come from. This is our story of slavery to freedom. And in that moment, I started to realize that as we gather around the table, whether it is a, a remembrance of the Passover, whether there is the celebration of the Eucharist and the Lord's Supper, it, it is that story of slavery to freedom. And I think you and I, when we gather around a table, when we're intentional about our conversation, when we move beyond the questions of whether and work and how did you meet, we can start to share our own stories and discoveries of our spiritual transformation from slavery to freedom you uh, that reminds me you, you talk a lot in the book about the importance of community uh, as it relates to food both in your, your opening anecdote in the um, in the introduction sort of all throughout uh, in the different um, chapters uh, what what is it that's so significant about a meal shared with others how mm. is that different than than just eating food alone mm. I think that there is something that happens that is very disarming in the very process of gathering around the table. I mean, when I sit and eat across from you and across and beside other friends, we are all in our deed confessing that in essence, we are not our own and we cannot live alone. That through the process of eating, we are dependent on something else. Uh, That we need that food in order to survive. You know, God could have fashioned us a thousand different ways. He could have made us to survive licking, you know, rocks and eating stones. And I'm super glad he didn't like, oh, thank you, God, for all the taste buds. Amen. But I think that when we go through that act of actually eating and confessing through deed that, that we are not alone, we cannot sustain in our, on our own, that all of a sudden it, it's disarming in a way. It can be subtle. That if we allow ourselves, that we create a space where we come to the table hungry, but I think that what we're hungry for is more than an appetizer or a main course or a dessert. I think that our hearts are hungry to know and to be known, to acknowledge and be acknowledged, to listen and to be heard. There is that hunger for each of us to enter into a space where we can be vulnerable, or perhaps we can move beyond the, the, the entanglement of shame to experience love and acceptance. And that is a beautiful space that the table opens up. And ironically, one that I think in our fast food, fast paced culture that is, that is being eroded. Um, you know, so many of us, we struggle to gather around a table with us. We, we eat on the go. I don't know. Sometimes if you look in my backseat, I don't know about yours, what's yours like, but, uh, there's a lot of fast food, like empty wrappers of me eating on my, do you have that? Do you have that? I have small children, so it's a lot of crumbs and goldfish crackers, but yes. <laughs> and leftover toy stuff between the seats from McDonald's or whatever little toy company. I don't even know what's between the seats. <laughs> It's sticky, probably. It's super sticky. Probably, yes. <laughs> but but I think there is that thing that when we will slow down, and that doesn't mean you need to spend 19 hours preparing a meal. I mean, order takeout, but invest the time and energy about about that space that can become so holy when we invite Christ in to encounter us around the table. It, it almost sounds like you're saying that, that by... By satisfying two appetites uh, in a single in a single setting, we somehow enhance the the degree of satisfaction that we experience. Like, like I don't know, sort of how if you are eating and smelling at the same time, like that's a more um, 
it's a, it's a stronger experience than just smelling something and then just eating something apart from a smell. But that like while we're having that psychological and emotional and spiritual hunger filled by community while we also satisfy our, our physical hunger, um, that that somehow makes makes it a more fulfilling experience for both of those. Is that sort of like what you're saying? That's a beautiful way to put it. Really, really well said. I think you're right. I think that is that sense of that, that we come with our physical hungers, but I think that I think that physical hunger in some ways is is just that embedded reality of our dependence on God. And that through the food, we are reminded of God's goodness and his presence too. I mean, that food is a symbol that, that, that God sustains us, that God provides us, that we literally need him for our daily bread, um, even if you're gluten-free. Like there is there's daily provision of God that we need him and that we need each other. I mean, think back to the garden, you know, the first thing that God says, hey, it's not good. It's been good, good, good and very good. And all of a sudden it's not good is that Adam is alone and that we were not just created with a, a human shaped heart or a hole in our hearts, but also a people shaped heart that we are we are intended to be woven into the fabric of humanity in that space of knowing and being known, of becoming cheerleaders for each other, champions of each other, listeners, and, and loving each other more deeply. Well, and it's a way that we can, we can get a glimpse too of, uh, of the community of God, right? He, he within, within his own triune nature is in community at all times. And so it's a, it's a tiny sliver. I think of us maybe, maybe a way in which we image him, um, in, in our tiny, imperfect and flawed way, um, as well. Well, speaking of, of that and talking about you know, the provision of God and, and the, the things that, that food teaches us about him, what, what is something that your experiences, um, with, with writing this book and the, the different travels and, and studies that you did, what's something that, that you learned about the character of God? I know you've probably learned a ton of stuff. So just, just pick, pick one thing for purposes of this, this discussion. Yeah, let me get, let me get really uh, microscopic because one of the beauties of the Taste and See book and Bible study is this idea that we can actually look and study the food in the Bible at a granular level. And if I understand that, it starts to speak of the character of God. It reveals some of the intentionality and the beauty of just how thoughtful and loving and detail-oriented our God is. But one of the trips was my husband and I went to Croatia to bring in an olive harvest with a family on the island of Havar who lived so remote there was no electricity. Electricity. And so we're going and we're harvesting olives like old school fashion. So no electronic tools or machines. And, and the reason they don't use that or even like hand rakes is because they recognize that if you bruise an olive, um, it will actually affect the flavor of the olive oil that is produced. And so they're trying to delicately pick their olives in such a way that the olive oil has the best possible flavor. And as I'm standing in front of this olive tree, um, I, I'm looking up and I'm, I'm picking and I'm picking and, and what I start to notice is the leaves. And if you look at different pictures of olive trees, you'll notice that in some pictures they are green leaves. And then in other, it's almost like they're a silver gray. And if you actually look at an olive leaf, it is a micro miracle. And, and because in the dry season, the leaf will actually lay flat with tiny little hairs on it that will lay flat in order to absorb the most possible moisture. But on the cold and rainy, it will curl under. And so in that moment, it will look more silvery gray. And so you see this, that God has created such detail in each individual leaf. Well, here we are and we are plucking and we are picking. We're doing this eight, 10 hours a day. And, you know, at the end of the day, shoulders are sore. You know, you've, you've reached, you've got scratches on your hands. I mean, you've been working all day. And I remember coming home one night and I looked at my hands and even though I was exhausted and worn and there were small cuts, you could still see where they were starting to heal and that my hands looked like they'd been at a world-class spa all day. And I remember looking at that and thinking about olives and how often they represent the healing nature of God. Uh, we look back in the, the, the kings, and when they were kinged in the Old Testament, they were often anointed with oil. And that was not just a little dabble-do-you kind of oil. Like, that was oil that dripped on your entire face, through the beard, down across the cloak and the clothes. And part of that, that 
oil, what it would do is when the light hit it, it would give a reflection as if that person had been chosen or found favor from God. We see in the New Testament, the call that we would be people who, uh, who, who are anointed with oil. We see the moments uh, in, in, in the Old Testament when, when the prophet comes along and looks at the widow whose kids are literally being trafficked, sold into slavery for trafficking, and is told to gather all the containers. And it is the oil that brings the healing and the freedom to her and her children. And we start to see that that healing is not just in the call to reach for olive oil, but it's actually in the olive oil, even the leaves itself, in the sense that they are, um, they can, they contain antibacterial um, and anti-inflammatory properties right in them. And so how great and how good is our God that he is such a healing God that he would not only call us to be anointed by, by a substance that actually brings healing to people uh, from the outside in and the inside out. That's a great reminder. Um, thank you. Um, what, um, what then, what's something that, that the, these experiences taught you not just about God, but now, now let's turn and think, okay, what about, what did you learn about yourself through these adventures? Mm. I think that I, like many of us have fallen into a place where I, I'm an American. I'm just going to be honest with you. And I am so disconnected from my food sources. I, it is, I, I go to the grocery store. I'm a Costco shopper. I buy in bulk. It's a problem. I know. <laughs> Do you, are you a Costco girl? Sam's we don't Club? have, we don't have Costco. Oh. We have to settle for Sam's club, which I like, yes. but it's not the same. It's not the same, but it's still pretty great. Yeah. It's still pretty great. And so, but, but I, I shop at grocery stores. I, I shop at, at mass warehouses. I'm so disconnected from my food sources. And so for me, I think it, food had become largely a commodity. It's something you do. It's something you get done. It's something you woof down. It's something that in sometimes gets in the way a necessity, but, but that was never how I think food was intended by God. And so in the project of researching this, a, a couple changes in me are first of all, when I sit down to pray now, my husband and I, we don't just give the rote prayer that we once gave for our food. We are giving thanks. We are giving thanks for the farmer who planted the seeds and harvested, the drivers who transported. We are giving thanks for um, the God who hung the sun and provided the rain. We are giving thanks for, for the various pieces that were involved in bringing that food and that nourishment to our plate. And then we're in greater thanks for those who may gather with and share a meal with us. Uh, I'm also becoming more intentional in, 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 starting to understand my food sources, going to the local farmer's market, you know, maybe it's just picking up a few peaches or a dozen eggs, but not just buying them, but getting to know the farmers, hearing their stories, sometimes even inviting myself to their farm um, and, and building those relationships, becoming more rich. Also just in very practical, shifting the way that I look at food and shop for it. You know, I'll be honest, I, I've been primed as a person who goes to the grocery store and picks out all the most beautiful fruits and vegetables. But now I've started going, there's one aisle where they sell it slightly reduced, but, but the unattractive produce and, and picking that out and buying that, because I know that that food waste is such an issue in our country where almost 40% or more of food is thrown away. And so looking for ways to be more thoughtful, more intentional, more grateful, and recognizing more dependency on God. And probably the biggest is the way that I now gather at the table that I used to pray when we sat down to eat with people. And now I begin praying long before the meal ever starts. And I ask God to show up that night and I'm starting to approach my meals with this expectancy and this prayer that the Holy spirit would show up, that he would pull up a chair, that he would do what he can only do. And sometime during the night, I'll usually try to slip in a question, whether or not the person knows God, I may phrase it different, but do you, do you have any areas where you just sense a higher power or maybe the divine working in your life and just allowing that to set for a moment and, and seeing how the conversations begin to open up. It, it's not a magic formula. It doesn't work every time, but I am amazed that with prayer and intentionality and with a simple question in your back pocket posed at the right time, how all of a sudden people are willing to open up 
become more vulnerable, know and be known, and start to create that place of, of the table as not just a place for consumption, but a place of gratitude and a place of personal transformation. This this may be asking sort of a question that, that leads to the same answer that you just gave, but what, you know, re- reading this book and, and and being convicted about how I'm supposed to be, you know, the, the two great commandments are to love God and to love my neighbor, and that, that everything I do, I do needs to be shaped by those commandments. So what are some ways that we can improve the way we relate to food so that our eating demonstrates love to God and love to our neighbor? Mm. Yeah, there. I think some of those ways are intentional. I think Every, almost every town or someone near you likely has either a farmer's market or a farm stand. And to go and, and to talk to that person, to, to support them. You know, one of the ways that we start to bring about change on a larger level is through our dollars. That is just reality. And when we choose to vote with our dollars and vote to support the farmer who has worked so hard, uh, it makes a difference. And, and part of that is understanding the farmer's plight. You know, it's it said that, that a farmer is responsible for feeding about 140 families on average in the United States of America, but can barely feed their own. And so what ways can you come along and support what is not just their food efforts, it is this creative, beautiful work that they are doing that is redeemable and celebrating that. I think a second way that we can do that is by inviting people into our house and creating places where maybe they can be a little bit disarmed. Uh, we do this and it's pretty intentional. So when you come to our house, we live in the West, which I know this is not going to work for some of our listeners, but in the West, because it's muddy and it's icky, we all take off our shoes. And so we invite people to take off their, their shoes and we'll provide them socks or little slippers to keep their feet warm if it's winter. But then they come in and in our kitchen, we'll lay out a charcuterie board. It's just a board with cheeses and meats, a little bit of dried fruit and some crackers on it. And we gather people in the kitchen because we know probably like you do, I mean, the kitchen is the heart of beat of the home. That is that place where people just naturally want to gather. And so we create space and place in there for people to feel like they're instantly ushered in, instantly welcomed. And then often we don't eat at the dining room table because sometimes dining room tables feel formal. There can be a stiffness, an inherent awkwardness. Uh, this is the role or what I'm supposed to perform here. And we don't want that. So we usually eat in our living room and we have a big table in there and the couches and people eat on their laps. They sit on the floor. Um, Of course, we're we're very sensitive to people who maybe have physical challenges that would make that difficult. And then we will definitely eat at the table to honor them. But but this disarming nature, um, it really can do a lot in the setting. And notice that none of the things that I said were about working on a meal for 19 hours or having the perfect food or spending a bazillion dollars on your meal. It was just the way of creating a space where people can be most comfortable, most welcomed, feel most loved, feel slightly disarmed so that they can truly be themselves and be loved through that. Now I want to come to your house for dinner. (laughs) (laughs) We'll have the best time. We'll drink amazing beverages. We'll eat yummy food. We'll laugh. Let's know you really well and you come over. I'm just already in my jammies. It's just so cozy and fun. Yes. And that's, I mean, that's a huge part of hospitality, right? Is not, is not creating an artificial environment, but inviting people into the home that you have um, and sharing what you have with people, whether that's simple um, in the terms of the fodder or simple in terms of the setting or whatever that, that, like you said before, people are longing for home and connection. And we're going to feel that more in a, in a home that feels like a home than in an artificial setting. So that all makes perfect sense. Um, I want to shift gears a little bit. Um, you, you focus a lot in Taste and See about the positive potential of food and the positive um, attributes of God that we see and all of these things with it. Um, but there's there's a, a quote, and I'm not going to read it now, but C.S. Lewis once observed basically that the, the greater something had the potential to be good or to be used for good, the greater it, its potential was for evil if it was perverted. Um, and so I'm wondering what are some ways that food can also be an opportunity uh, for sin, some ways that we need to be looking out for or, or um, just challenging ourselves with regard to that we're not letting something designed to be so good and a blessing become, yeah, become an opportunity for sin. Yeah. I mean, you think about the original sin, it involved food. Yep. Um, yep. I mean, that's, that's where we, that's where we hug it. Um, 
I think that the obvious are overeating. It is gluttony. It is the normal things that are that are associated with food. I think in our culture, it is so easy to to come to the table and find yourself in a space of shame rather than a place of what is sacred. And so recognizing, and that's what I'm trying to do in the Taste and See book and Bible studies, is call people to take a step back from all of that. Take a step back from all the calorie counting, all of the New Year's resolutions, all of the meal management, and let's just talk about what maybe God at a deeper level is trying to do in us and satiate our hungers. But I think that one of the sins that I know I've been wrestling with a lot lately regarding sin uh, or regarding food is this idea that once you become educated on food, once you have preferences of food, it's easy to allow food to become a separation point between you and others. Uh, oh, uh -huh. I, you know, like I, I say, well, I don't, I don't want to eat that, or I wish that person hadn't served that, or um, Can you believe they don't buy organic, right? Right. right all of, of a sudden food becomes a place of judgment. It becomes a place of power. Uh, suddenly you're serving food that nobody else can afford. Um, it becomes a, a place of kind of a, an abusive attitude and a separation. And I love my friend Norman Wearsby. He wrote a wonderful book called Food and Faith. But he just said, Margaret, everything you take, you must take with grace. And so whenever that starts to pile up, whenever those thoughts of, I don't want to eat that, or I can't believe they bought it from there, or I know how that was really processed, like take a step back and just give thanks and embrace that as a way to eat with graciousness and with love and with thankfulness. And that's really helped create a softer place in my heart because I think I was getting a little bit hard-hearted. And, and just to be honest, it's hard in the sense of once you start to understand in, in modern America where our food sources are from, like it, it's, it, it's pretty rough and tumble out there. Uh, it's pretty, it's pretty, wow. There are things you're not going to want to eat anymore or, or stay away from, or try to avoid. And yet love and grace says, I will eat this with thanksgiving and with gratitude and with celebration and with appreciation, no matter what. Sort of a, sort of a Roman Romans 14 situation where you have to extend grace to someone whose conscience is different than yours, or even if it's just an information um, difference where they don't, they don't have that information, that the people matter more um, and that we have to extend grace to another. That's a great reminder. That's such, um, a, that's such a great, the way you said that is so simple and yet profound. And I think part of that is also an acknowledgement that we are living in a culture and in a world with increased uh, food allergies. And so making sure before somebody comes over to dinner or you share a meal or you're ordering in for your staff at work, you know, what food allergies are present and how to make it all the food accessible. Because at the same time, food, as you said, is one thing that unites, but it is also as a potential for evil, something that so separates. And there is nothing worse than going to church and going to take communion. And there isn't a gluten-free option. There is nothing worse than going out to lunch with friends at, you know, and, and, they're gluten free, gluten and dairy free, and you t you you pick the Italian restaurant, and there is literally barely a side salad to eat on the menu, and so becoming more sensitive and learning to love people right where they are with the food struggles um, that they have is so important. Yeah, that's I mean that's just, I I think it's something that's easy to to forget if we're used to having the privilege of being able to just eat food wherever we happen to be uh, and have that all be food that our bodies can consume without without difficulty um, but but it's such a gift it's such a way to to go back to so to love your neighbor to say you can come and you can just eat yeah. and you don't have to you don't have to worry and you don't have to you know comb through the menu or interrogate the staff or whatever it is that that, that is um, their particular limitation to have that be like a you know what you don't have to worry there's no dairy here or there's no um, uh, there's no soy or whatever the particular limitation is, um, and I know it can it can be a little bit of a a challenge um, for the the hostess or the cook sometimes if you're not used to doing that. But but it is it is a way to truly show hospitality and love and give that gift um, to your guest, um, as particularly one that they may not be um, may not always have uh, have access to. Like we're in a smaller town, and so the, a lot of those options are much more limited in the restaurants around town, um, and so. It, it is it is a very practical way to love your neighbor 
yeah, to and feed I, them in a way yeah. that their bodies can actually consume. Yeah, I find that for some people, you know, avoiding the majority of food and allergies, if I go Mexican or I go Asian, I'm usually in a better place to have people get what they need. Um, mm-hmm. Of course, bringing uh, gluten-free soy. Uh, and, and then the other, like, I have a friend. So, and this is more than I think, you know, as we, as we go deeper with people, like I have a friend right now who I'm just like, she's going to be my friend. I adore her. We love, I love spending time with her, but her food allergies are like a billion. I mean, do you know what I'm saying? Like, I just, I just look and I'm like, I don't know what to cook. I can't, I don't. And so do you know what? I had her take me to the grocery store and actually show me what she buys. And I took photos of it because I am so committed to trying to love her and create a safe space where I'm like, you're going to come to my house and you're going to eat a meal that you like, it kills me. Um, and, and so, you know, going to whatever lengths for the people that you're really investing in to understand their world and, and to try to translate that through food, I think that's an act of love. And I think it's one that we can all learn to practice in and learn to love people through. I think that's that's a great a great practical application of the principles that you talk about in the book. Um, I do want to ask. This is kind of a a little bit off topic question, maybe, but as you point out in the book, the original readers and hearers uh, of the Bible almost certainly had more familiarity with agricultural than most modern evangelicals. Um, but uh, many believers currently and throughout history didn't have access to the sort of firsthand or even secondhand experience with the practical details of food in the Bible. So like, I don't know what it's like to fish on the Galilee, but I can read your book and I can find out about that or I can consult secondary sources. But those are those are options that are not available to everyone and, and haven't been available to everyone throughout the history of the church. And we know that the Bible is living and active and it accomplishes God's purposes in the lives of believers. So how do we think well about the value of personal experience, secondary sources, and historical context while we still affirm that the Bible is clear, complete, and effective, even for those who don't have those resources? Mm, Does that that make sense? Oh, it's such a fantastic question. Well done. Well done. Um, I think that I think that the Bible is living and active, and I think that as we study and we dive in, we discover that there are layers upon layers upon layers of meaning, and that through the power of the Holy Spirit, God is faithful, that his word does not return void, that he accomplishes in our lives what he wills, if we will lean in and listen and yield to him and his work in our lives. But I also think that that when we read the Bible, that, you know, that there are wonderful literary things and literal, but, but I don't think you can go to Home Depot and buy Jesus the door. And so I think there is this mode of engaging and reflecting and wrestling with and understanding, you know, that those, the context with which it is written. And when we start to understand the historical context so often, um, it it does affirm the Bible as clear and complete and effective, but it adds another layer of rich insight that just affirms what I think, what I think the scripture was going to accomplish anyway. Let, Let me give you a practical example from my studies. So, So at one point, um, Jesus gives a line and he says, pay attention to the fig tree. And so I always thought, pay attention to the fig tree. Well, I'd be like paying attention to a citrus tree or a cherry tree or a blueberry bush or any other fruit tree I knew. And yet when I went and I studied the fig tree, I I honestly had never known figs before. What I began to discover is here's this tree that is really unusual and different than any other fruit tree that I I had ever encountered. In that when a a fig tree is growing, it it grows green. All of the the leaves, they shoot out pretty quickly. They grow. uh, the, The fruits can appear, but it appears green. And so it's really hard to see. And so it's only a few days before the figs turn ripe that anything in the tree will not be green. And then once it turns ripe, you only have a very limited amount of time, maybe seven to 10 days in that, in that time to pick it when it's truly ripe. And then it will go bad fairly quickly within, within another week or two. And so when Jesus says, pay attention to the fig tree, he means look really, really, really close. If you're a long distance from the fig tree and you're just waiting to see the flowers, there are no flowers on a fig tree. 
because all of the figs are flowers that are actually technically turned in on themselves. So you're not going to see the normal signs of other fruit trees like the cherry or the orange blossom. And so when Jesus, again, is saying, pay attention, he means be close, wake up every day, search, just like the fig farmers do. When you bring in a fig harvest, you don't go out to the tree all at once. You actually go out each day. And on a particular branch, you may have one that ripens lower on the branch, one upper on the branch. Then you'll go out three days later and maybe two or three more will ripen. And then two or three days later, another two will ripen. And then another two or three days and one more will ripen. And so it is an ongoing, intimate, interactive, paying attention to the fig tree. And so we start to look at fig imagery in the Bible. We start to catch this glimpse of, of how people looked at it and how that doesn't shift necessarily with the Bible, maybe how you've read or interpreted it before, but it adds this layer of holy exclamation mark to what Christ's words are. So sort of a, like the, 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 the meaning that we need to get out of it, we can get out of it without consulting um consulting a bunch of secondary sources, God is, is able to make this communication and to communicate by his word what he needs us to uh, to understand. But because it's also a living word, uh, we never exhaust the, the extent of the communication that's there. And so we can sort of always be digging and always be mining new truth, not new truth in the sense of like changing what we already knew, but um, further shaping or uh, illuminating the, that, a surface level truth. Is that sort of like what you're saying? Yes, that is very okay. well put. Um, that's, that's really helpful. Thank you. Um, I do want to know for, for any of our listeners or people who've read the book, um, who want to learn more about food in the Bible, um, particularly if, you know, we're in a position where we can't go visit an olive grove in Croatia, as awesome as that sounds, um, <laughs> or a fish on the Galilee, um, what uh, additional resources uh, would you recommend for those interested in studying other biblical foods? Mm, I think start local. You know, it is amazing. A lot of these trips led to the other side of the world, but they started right here in my own community. I went out and I talked to local chefs and local cooks and local bread bakers. Um, and it was incredible what I learned just right here in my own community. And so what I discovered in this incredible adventure is that, you know, you don't have to travel halfway around the world. You can find many of these foods growing within the United States, some of them growing right nearby. If you're in Utah, there are a lot of salt sources nearby. And at the same time, if you're going on a trip, maybe a road trip with friends or a weekend getaway, and you have the opportunity in your schedule, look for what foods you might be able to research with your friends. I mean, there is, I'm sorry, but I think going to a, a tasting a food party, uh, tasting different olive oils, trying different salts in a little kitchen store in town, it can be so enlightening and delightful and it can draw people together. And so you don't have to go far to start looking at food in the Bible in a whole new way. Well, and, and we've sort of talked a little bit today about, about food in the Bible, but also just food as food. So even specific foods that aren't in the Bible, but that we still consume and are still provided for us um, by the creator. So certainly, even if even if the foods that you're encountering at your local farmer's market, maybe they don't specifically mention uh, uh, the, the particular variety of apple or something that you have, um, or particular fruit, um, but that still gives you the opportunity to, as you were saying before, learn about the history of your food, learn about the different people people made in the image of God whose labor helped get that food to you and who have, who have served you in that way so that you can better love those neighbors as well. So even sort of like the food in the Bible, but also just food. Yeah, um, absolutely. About. And also just, I mean, ask the next, you've got a farmer probably likely in or near your community, somebody who is processing, procuring, planting food, talk to them. If it is a farmer, ask them what it is like to be dependent. How, how do they see God in light of needing rain and needing to be protected from pestilence and heavy winds? What is that like? Does that, how does that affect their faith? How, what is it like to wait for a harvest? What is the joy of the harvest like? You can start 
engaging in these themes, right, with people. Some of them may go to your own church. You may have a shepherd in your church or your community that you can begin talking to. You may have a beekeeper that you can begin talking to and looking at what does it mean when, when God is talking about the promised land as a land flowing with honey. And so it, you don't have to go far to taste and see God's goodness. I'm really convicted listening to you because my first response to all of this is like, well, you go to the library and you find a book and you read the book and that's how you learn about whatever it is. And it's very convicting to be reminded that like, well, first of all, with some of these very practical uh, aspects of human experience, right? There's going to be a, just a, an inherent weakness to the written word as the description of those things. But also that like, yeah, we, we, we also have that opportunity to learn and connect at the same way, at the same time. Um, if, if we go to say the farmer's market and talk to them rather than just going and like looking up um, farm to table practices on, you know, Google or, or at the local library. So a uh, good reminder to be trying to build relationships and care for our neighbors and not just, um, look for information sort of divorced from that. Uh, so I appreciate that reminder as well. Um, I had another really specific practical question. Um, the book, uh, the, that, um, that, uh, the taste and see book has in it some pictures, um, of your adventures and they are, they look great, but they're in black and white. And is there anywhere that we can go, uh, that, that readers can go to see what any of these pictures look like in color? I'm particularly intrigued by the salt mine and you described it so vividly and so beautifully that looking at a black and white picture of the salt was just completely, completely underwhelming after hearing about how just lovely it was. And I'm wondering, I realize like there's just limitations with publishing and it's not, not meant to cast dispersions at anyone, but are there places to go to see any of these pictures or similar pictures um, in color? Wow. You know what? You are the first person to ask that question. I love this question. And I am going to have our team put together a resource uh, on my site so that people can see them in color. Uh, You are absolutely right. I I did not even consider that. I know in the the printing and the publishing, there are very strict limitations where that was not possible. But in an internet age, all things are possible. Awesome. I'm super excited to see those because they sounded amazing. Um, Well, here on uh, Christian Humanist Profiles, we always make it our practice to give the author the last word. So before we finish up our interview, I want to give you that opportunity. Uh, Anything else you want to comment on or clarify or just uh, just to say before we conclude? Yeah. I think the Taste and See book and Bible study my heart and my hope behind it is that you will never read the Bible the same way again. That as you start going through the scriptures, you will start seeing the rich imagery of food in the Bible and that it will call you, it will beckon you to dive in and to study more, to study these individual foods within a community, to dive into the deeper meanings, what they represented, how they were grown, and understand those at a granular level so that when you read the Bible, it comes alive in a whole new, fresh way. My other hope is that you will begin to recognize that God is waiting around every table in every place, and you don't need a passport or a plane ticket to find him. You just need a table and some chairs and some deliciousness and a friend or two. And asking the question, where is God moving you from slavery to freedom right now? Well, I think it can open up deeper conversations, deeper connections, and provide the fullness in your heart and in your life that your soul hungers for. So my hope and prayer is that you will dive into the scripture and taste and see God's goodness like never before. Christian Humanist Profiles is a production of the Christian Humanist Radio Network. Our press liaison is Kristen Philippic. Our audio editor is Britt Stack. Go in grace. Go in peace. Serve the Lord.